Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new season of Media Voices. This time we're doing things ever so slightly differently. In the run-up to our annual Media Moments report, we're going to be doing 10 episodes doing deep dives into topics from subscriptions and memberships to local news platforms, emerging tech, basically everything of note from the past year in media. And we're delighted to say that for this run of episodes, we're going to be bringing in a media expert for each and every episode. So this week, we're joined by Charlotte Henry, who is a British journalist covering media, tech, culture, and politics. She's behind the Edition Newsletter and Podcast, which you should definitely check out, which publishes investigations, news and opinion on everything from Web3 explainers to broadcast trends. Uh, previously, the UK associate editor of the Mac Observer, one of the most popular and longstanding Apple websites where she led coverage of Apple's move into media. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I was a bit worried who the media expert was when you said that. <laughs> I was looking around to see who was here. Actually, that said, now we've introduced our guests, we should probably introduce ourselves. So I'm Chris Sutcliffe. <laughs> I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. So the topics we're going to be discussing um, this season, we've got these 10 episodes. Um, these are all going to be featured in our annual Media Moments 2022 report. Um, this actually means that we do all the research for them early and on I hope we get everything written <laughs> nice and on time this year. Uh, Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> that is coming out November the 30th. Um, you can, for the first time this year, pre-register to receive the report as soon as it goes live. So if you head over to voices.media slash mm22, uh, you can actually fill in your details and we will send you the report as soon as it goes live on November the 30th. Although... That said, this season and the Media Moments 2022 report wouldn't be possible at all without the support of our sponsors, Pool. So Pool is the membership and subscription suite, which is used by publishers like Future, Euronews, El Magazine France, Harvard Business Review, and countless others around the world. So their all-in-one platform helps publishers convert, manage, retain members, and subscribers. And as some of the topics we're going to be discussing this season make clear, that is still a huge focus for publishers worldwide. You can find out more about them at pool.tech, that is P-O-O-O. OL.tech, and we'll link to them from our show notes at voices.media. But this first episode is all about broadcast. So, Peter, why did we pick broadcast? Well, because it's been a really busy year. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of changes uh, in the sort of streaming space in terms of how that is funded. Are people still paying for it? What's the kind of who's, who's fighting who in the streaming wars? Uh, Everyone, <laughs> all fight each other, Peter. Spoiler. Well, that, that's the first tech. Um, the other side of that is what is going on in this wonderful country of ours, where the government's been getting involved, and the lovely billionaire philanthropists like <laughs> Rupert Murdoch have also been getting involved. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so much going on. So we thought, okay. Let's well, educate Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Not just what's going on, but a sort of changing sentiment around everything from kind of traditional broadcast models to how streamers are faring. So we're going to go through a couple of headlines here to begin with, and then we're all going to pick out one of our favorite media moments from the year, just as we do in the actual print and digital report itself. Um, so Esther, why don't you take us through what happened with streaming figures this year? Oh, gosh. Um, this is quite a recent stat, actually. Streaming has overtaken cable this year in the US. Uh, what's, it, what's the equivalent of cable in the UK? What do we call it? Combination of Freeview and Sky and those mm. things, isn't it? It's the kind, same kind of principle, isn't it? I've just always called it TV. But anyway, <laughs> um, I suppose, yeah, streaming has overtaken traditional methods of watching TV. Um, th this is just in the US, but it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, if the UK isn't far behind. Um, so, yeah, in the US last month, streamed content on Netflix, Hulu, YouTube TV and others um, actually amassed over a third of all viewing, 34.8%, uh, which beat cable at 34.4% and broadcast at 21.6%. Well, it surprised me. 
No. Oh, is that just because of the prevalence of it and sort of the, you know, that, that people are more habituated to seeking out TV content or, you know, even premium TV content through those streaming services now? Yeah, and I also think this idea of event television mm. has completely disappeared uh, with the exceptions of live sport and live major breaking news events. If, you know, the conversation isn't, that you have with your friends now is not, did you watch XYZ series on Thursday night? It's, have you watched so that you don't spoil it for someone? And <laughs> most of those things are on a streaming service. And I'm actually including things that from traditional bo- streaming services from traditional broadcasters in that. So there might be a series that's buried on the iPlayer that you haven't caught up with yet. Mm. But you're still, quote unquote, streaming it, even though it's from the BBC. Would you say that there's there's anything that, um, still counts as that kind of temp pole event TV. You know, I'm, I'm. Bake off. I was about to say. I was looking bake at you. Off. I, said, I think bake yeah. off. Bake off. Um, you're gonna. I think Peter's actually gonna throw me off the podcast as I say this. <laughs> but I think Love Island. Oh. I knew he was gonna do it. He'll get into oh, it. Um, but I think for p- people that care about Love Island, watching it as it plays out, so it's not spoiled. Mm. And there's this second screen phenomenon as well, isn't there? Yeah, people tweeting yeah. the whole way through the show and whatever. So I think things like that, and I, I, I mean quite seriously, I think live sport is basically the last man standing on that. Uh, there's a reason why the Sky Sports advert is it's only live once. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, absolutely. I think that really is the thing that keeps the whole show on the road. And we've seen so many investments in that. You know, some of the big right. platforms, like Amazon, for instance, has been uh, investing heavily in getting the broadcast rights, presumably because they know that that's still a big draw. Yeah, Apple longest TV time. doing live baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything. I mean, Apple TV Plus, sorry. Yeah, getting live baseball. So, yeah. And, you know, even the the platforms like Twitter, which historically haven't had that much, they've been investing in partnerships with the WNBA because they want at least a little piece of that event TV stuff. Um, but that is, it's not all bad news for kind of those streaming services when it comes to event TV, because there are some a huge, great programs like uh, Stranger Things, uh, SD, you've written down Virgin River and Umbrella Academy there. I've only seen Umbrella Academy, but that's pretty good. Those are the, um, those the top performers. I mean, I love Virgin River. Well, are they outliers? <laughs> Uh, so, so those are the ones that have driven. Um, so Netflix, there've been a lot of headlines we'll discuss later about their subscriber, um, their subscribers sort of essentially collapsing. Um, but actually, in July, they actually gained an eight percent share of viewing time because they've got they released a huge number of things like Stranger Things, Virgin River, Umbrella Academy. There were a lot of new series that came out, and it's it's just all being very very driven by. You know, Netflix subscribers will pick up when they release something good, mm. and then basically when there's nothing to watch, everybody cancels for like two or three months. <laughs> yeah. mm. well, that, that was why the way they stretched out Stranger Things, wasn't it? The last mm. series of Stranger Things, so um, to make sure people didn't do exactly what Esther's describing. I love so the did. idea that you go and kind of go, okay, well. We'll, we'll broadcast it all except the last episode, which will be coming. <laughs> no, the last five minutes of the last episode will be coming six months down the line. HBO had this when Game of Thrones ended a couple of years ago. Like everybody just en masse just cancelled. Mm. Well, yeah, I think I think actually Game of Thrones back in the day counted as a, uh, event TV. I mean, I'm not into those type of fantasy series, but I remember friends staying up to whatever time yeah. in the morning to watch it before work so that it didn't get ruined for them. <laughs> I think and it I might did. be the. <laughs> I think it might be the that that Game of Thrones finale might have been the last time that I had we had people round 
to, to watch something right. and it was 6 a.m in the morning and my mate <sighs> phil just like turned up to watch it we we turned up to watch it everyone was disappointed at the same time and then we all <laughs> went back to bed it was great um very normal behavior <laughs> <laughs> but that said i suppose the sentiment around streaming services has it's never i suppose particularly been one that's healthy i think they were living on i don't know borrow time's quite right they were just living on the fact that for a while there wasn't that many of them Mm -hmm. and so like and 6.99 here 9.99 there even a little bit more didn't really matter very much to most consumers and then suddenly there's loads of them and it's all quite uh you know all the different shows you might want to watch all quite spread out now and we're now for really for the first time in since streaming has become very mainstream, if you excuse the pun, um, has become a, where we're weighing up watch decisions are of value for us. Mm. I had this with um, Paramount Plus mm. first came to the UK and I tried it for a week because well, that was the free trial period. And then I was like, actually, I, 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 there's not enough here. Basically, the only reason you need Paramount Plus at the moment in the UK is if you have to have everything ever from Star Trek available at your fingertips at any moment. And for some people, that's really important. That's great, and it, it is the you know it can be the Star Trek service, and that's fine. But <laughs> you know, a lot of that stuff is still for the moment on Netflix. And so I was like, I don't need to add another direct debit, and yeah. that, so I haven't bothered, and that's fine. Exactly, uh, TNG's on Netflix. You don't need to don't need to go elsewhere. That's the best one. I think one of the things that we we did was for the first time ever was like do a subscription audit mm. where we actually added up what we were spending between Amazon, Netflix, Spotify, Disney, uh, yep. I don't know what else, Sky. Um, and it's actually quite scary when you when you add it all up. Mm-hmm. And you and you realise that you haven't watched it. Well, for us, it was um, it, it was Amazon. Although I kept Amazon because of Prime. Prime, but, yeah. Well, that's. But I haven't watched anything on Amazon for ages. Amazon's its own beast, isn't it? But what we're leading up to here is the idea that as we come into what looks to be quite a severe cost of living crisis, some, I suppose, some streaming services have had to adapt because the idea that people will pay for something that they don't necessarily get the most value out of is. It's it's changing, you know. It's it's scary for them the idea that people don't have that disposable income now, and so there have been lots of arguments that the streaming revolution has peaked, that the, the kind of the the boom time for that, the gold rush has got been and gone. And Netflix with a big headline here, they lost two hundred thousand subscribers in the first three months of the year, and an additional one million in Q two. Um, I wonder if you could chart that by originals. So sort of. possibly and i have to say between february and probably july i was very seriously thinking about it because there was just nothing on there and then in mm. july they brought out a load of um a load of new stuff and i've stayed with them but it's i, I think what's particularly interesting about this and netflix is the fact that because netflix were one of the first to this as charlotte said at the start um they're almost being used as a bit of a kind of canary in the mine for a lot of this um so you know netflix shares dropped about 65 percent when they announced their q2 results um, and it yeah, wiped about $70 billion off their market capitalization. But it was the fact that all the other streaming stocks took a hit because of Netflix's poor performance. And investors are there saying, well, is this, are we like to see this across other services too? Um, I mean, we talked to uh, Toolkit's Jack Marshall a couple of weeks after Netflix announced their first um, subscriber loss. And he, he had that same theory that it wasn't that you know, streaming was over by any means or that 
um, other companies should be worried. It, it just showed how much that pressure is on having good shows and having shows that keep people subscribed because it is so easy to say, Do you know, what? I'm actually going to switch my subscription to Amazon Prime this month and watch whatever the Lord of the Rings thing is. Peter's shaking his what? head like you never I was going to say, it, yeah. Exactly. Like, what a fucking concept. Good stuff people pay for. I know. Jesus, I just wanted to return, if I may, actually, to Peter's point about um, subscription audits, because I think it's a really important point. Because if people like the four of us are doing it, and let's be honest, yeah. we are not by any stretch of the imagination Absolutely. an average media consumer. <laughs> nope. What are you saying? <laughs> but if people like that, are, like us are doing that and having these thoughts and considerations, normal people are going to be doing it by orders of magnitude more. So and there, I think there, there are quite a few banking apps that have actually started bringing homepages up where you can just one-click cancel a lot of these as a oh, way yeah. to help people with cost of living. I noticed NatWest was starting to do it. Mm. I'll say that the the single best subscription in terms of value that I have is to Limmy on Twitch because he streams four hours a day. It costs me four quid a month and he is on my screen for four hours every day. It is far and away the best value subscription I have. That's never getting cut. We're already seeing some stuff being bundled together. I noticed, I think it's Paramount Plus has been lobbed in with Sky Cinema, hasn't mm-hmm. it already? Mm. You know, and that's weeks really that it's been available in the UK months but and some of them aren't even being some of them aren't even necessarily being bundled they're additive so if you want to subscribe to the horror channel Shudder you can do that by adding that onto your Amazon Prime subscription as well Mm -hmm. so it, it really does speak to this idea that does all that cost the benefits. Extra, though? It does cost extra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a bundling, and then it's but it speaks to this idea that what was once seen as the big benefit of streaming of of having everything in one place, and you could just do one subscription. You didn't need to pay for you know Sky Sports if you weren't going to watch it. Well, I think some of that is actually coming back, and I think one of the big battles between these companies is if they can be your. This is a horrible phrase. I'm sorry, but like your TV homepage. Yeah. So that mm. example of Amazon Prime Video you used, there's loads of different channels you can subscribe to within Amazon Prime Video because they basically want to be the place where you turn on your TV and you open up the Prime Video app and that's where you stay. And they don't care if you're watching the horror channel Shudder mm. or one of their originals or I think La Liga TV you can get on there, some Spanish football, and they don't care. You're yeah. paying them. They presumably get some quite decent cut of your subscription cost and you're still within their ecosystem and i think apple is going to battle in this world does that mean people like sky have an advantage you know where sky's already got a lot of these other content suppliers as part oh for sure i mean if you turn on your open up your sky tv you can get to netflix from there you can get through get never mind all the channels you get through sky anyway i'm sure that is a huge advantage to them yeah absolutely is this why CNN Plus <laughs> ah, launched and crashed within a month? Is is there just can the market sustain yet another streaming service? Or have we have we actually have we hit peak subscription service, not peak subscription? Everything went downhill when Quibi failed. <laughs> I was wondering when we were going to mention Quibi. <laughs> May it rest in peace. Um, I. So I think there was a lot of very specific things going on with CNN Plus. So I think, first of all, news as a streaming service mm. is difficult as a starter when because you can get news in loads of other places already with stuff you already have. Um, second of all, I don't think CNN Plus specifically was offering enough. For example, you couldn't actually watch CNN through <laughs> CNN Plus. 
if you just wanted to watch CNN the news feed, you didn't get it. It wasn't part of CNN Plus. It was very it was specific shows for that service. So they had so if you're a big Anderson Cooper fan, who's one of the big news anchors on CNN, you couldn't watch him doing the news on CNN Plus. He had a parenting show on CNN Plus. <laughs> um, I think the only thing that was sort of similar was there was Brian Stelter, who mm. had, they made reliable sources at a daily show. Now, reliable sources doesn't even exist as a weekly show, and Brian Stelter has left CNN. Um, Chris Wallace left Fox News to join CNN Plus. Um, I think that was meant to be like an evening talk show, and that obviously I don't know what's going on there now. Um, but yeah, it was just a bit of a horror show, really. They had fewer than <laughs> 10,000 people using the service on a daily basis. Um, but I, I remember talking about this at the time. Like, like four weeks is not like that's barely time for people to get settled into yep. where they're sitting and you know their desks well, and so, what they're doing. But there was also a bunch of internal stuff exactly. at CNN mm. after the acquisition. Um, well, the Warner Brothers Discovery yeah. merger mm. acquisition, or however we want to coin it, totally changed the dynamic. And they just looked at this thing and were like, "It's what? too much money." Does this work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nah. Not enough people. None. <laughs> Thanks very much. Apparently, it cost. At least, well, it cost over three hundred million pounds. When I wrote about it back in April, they'd already spent three hundred million pounds, according to Axios. That so is madness. I, I almost really admire dollars, that. Three hundred yeah. million dollars. I, I sort of admire them looking at that, going, "You know what? I I'm aware yeah, of the sunk cool. cost fallacy. Yeah. I'm just going to walk away because no, if I'm, cool. I know from my experience in casinos, I would have just been like." No, we got to make this work. <laughs> We've got to make this work. It, it's I interesting. Had so though. many questions. Sorry, <laughs> I just got this image of him sat in front of a slot machine. Just no, it was roulette. Ways. It was roulette. It was bad. As a result of some of these changes and some of these structures that look like they're coming down, whether that's through the you know plurality of streaming services now or whether that's cost of living, we're seeing them having to adapt. So for years now, I think, but it's really ramped up in the last couple of months. Netflix, uh, Disney Plus has been clamping down on password sharing, for instance, mm. and they're talking about introducing producing new ad-supported models. In fact, we know that they're coming down the pipe. Um, so to what extent then do we think that this is a year of transition or are we just going to have to see more and more experimentation and more audience choice as we leave 2022 and go into 2023? Charlotte, it was quite interesting you did mention about um, Brian Stelter exiting CNN. Mm. Uh, we've actually had, it feels like that's been another one of the big changes this year. It's actually, there's been a huge exodus of talent from some of the leading, I suppose, traditional TV and broadcast studios. Um, I know in the UK we've had, in the B- the BBC we've had like yes. Emily Bateless, John Sopel, Lewis Goodall. They're, they've all left. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the BBC brain drain goes beyond that, but yes, you're absolutely yeah. right. And I suppose, is, is that another thing? If, I suppose there's this huge wider trend of generally the older institutions, whether that be in, in broadcast or sort of more traditional print publishing, really struggling to hold on to talent as some of the bigger digital opportunities come up. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing in the case of the BBC talent you just listed, and there's some behind, uh, you know, behind the mic talent as well. I'm thinking of Dina Sofos, who took his podcasting skills to a new com- uh, a way. A lot of them, in, and started his own company, uh, a lot of that is now working with the commercial rival Global. Mm. which is a kind of interesting dynamic that they've suddenly been in Andrew Marr. Uh, Everybody at, global has been really hoovering up talent. Has been hoovering up talent. There's, I've done some interesting reporting on why that might be and why so many people are exiting broadcasting house. Um, but yeah, the exodus of talent has been really noticeable. You're absolutely right. And we'll obviously 
over the kind of remaining months of this year and into next year. We'll see what that does for the new places that these people have landed. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, global, global payroll bill must be frightening. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about global all day, but one of the things that we probably should acknowledge and we always assume that people have you know, knowledge of this is the fact that the BBC is still an outlier, both in terms of how it is funded, how it has to report its uh, its talent, its wage, its wages, all this kind of stuff. So we, we often talk about it as being kind of that elephant in the room when it comes to broadcasting in the UK. Well, actually, speaking of that, um, my media moment for the year has been what has been going on with Channel 4 and the BBC, because for years now, uh, both of them have been subject of much speculation around how they're funded, whether that's through license fees, whether that's through Channel 4's um, ad-supported businesses. Um, And this year, there has been endless back and forth on what's going on with the license fee and potential privatization of Channel 4. And the general idea, which, you know, for all the government's faults is absolutely true, is that the broadcast sector has been changed with the rise of uh, over-the-top services. So that's VOD, live streaming, that's uh, some of the streaming services we mentioned before, and that traditional broadcasters absolutely need to evolve in the face of it. So back in February, it was reported that the BBC's effectively had a $2 billion pound funding cut enforced upon it. And then in the immediate aftermath of that, in fact, I think, Charlotte, did this begin last year, the talk of Channel 4 privatisation? It seems to be a recurring theme Mm. that comes up. I mean, Nadine Doris came out and spoke about it. And the most recent was uh, back in April, um, where she she tweeted about, on April the 4th, she tweeted uh, about her plans to privatise Channel 4. Obviously, the work, you know, things have shifted since then. She is no longer the mm. culture secretary. She will no longer be responsible for this. So it will be a very interesting uh, thing to see as th- this the new government come, kind of comes in and takes place. The new culture secretary gets her feet under the desk. Who has the new culture it's, secretary? I literally just, I just had to look that up because I just <laughs> thought, I don't know who that is, but I suppose it's the, queen, like the queen fifth, died like four days after she was appointed. It's Michelle Donnellan. Donnellan yeah, who was. Tr- Health Secretary for like 48 hours. Um, and she has actually also worked in marketing for Marie Claire magazine. Yep. So. Yes, Nadine Doris has gone back to writing books, but I don't think that... <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. That's literally what... I know, I know. It's just such an odd odd thing to have thought. Um, but... Well, she I spent that- all her time at DCMS making shit up, so it's probably quite a good move back for <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of... People kept pointing out that she was, you know, having to be informed about how Channel Four was funded in the first mm. place. So it's probably not the best person to have been undertaking this uh, this potential privatisation. <laughs> no, and you've spoken about the BBC as an outlier, Chris. Let's be clear: Channel Four, oh, one hundred percent, is an even <laughs> bigger outlier. It's the weirdest. If you break get into it, it's the weirdest setup. Yeah. But in a way, I think that's why it should be preserved because it does kind of work. Mm-hmm. Like it's a bit weird but it sort of leads to quite creative stuff i mean for me and people my age it's things like skins you know the bbc could never make skins it would never no. have got on away with making skins but like should i confess to married at first sight <laughs> there we go peep show dark place all this kind of stuff that has been you know probably who's wouldn't gonna have got mention what are you gonna do i'm not what? gonna say it we can say Big Brother. Go on, you have to say. Well, big there was Big Brother, of course. Yeah, Big Brother's in there. I was uh, Gogglebox. Yeah, cool. There's all sorts of <laughs> wow. kind of. I mean, for me, actually, the other thing that sort of defends Channel Four as a public service broadcaster is the work it's done on the Paralympics. Mm. Mm. 
uh, which, I mean, particularly in 2012, but it's kind of carried on, really brought Paralympic sport to the mainstream. I always mention and think of the brilliant, brilliant Meet the Superhumans advert they did for London 2012. But they've, you know, they've really committed to that. And I think that's kind of really important. And I think you have to be careful when you're going, oh, yeah, it'll be much better for, they'll be much freer, more creative channel for if they're private to not lose some of those elements. 100%. And in fact, a lot of the creatives who I've spoken to over the last year have said that, you know, that it was a unique place. They would not have been able to get this commission. They would not have been able to broadcast this. They wouldn't have been able to take on some of those public service um, projects without it being in its current form. And notably, advertisers and broadcast unions also universally expressed their disapproval of Channel 4. And this was pretty consistent over the year. Um, They noted that Culture Secretary's comparisons with Netflix were almost apples to oranges, didn't really take note of what Channel 4's strengths were and how it was viable and still remains to be viable. Um, Also at the same time as Netflix lost a million subscribers. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, But it's been interesting to see how Channel 4 in particular has evolved to demonstrate that it can survive or rather that it can do unique things in the kind of the age of streaming. So it's gone all in on sports partnerships with Amazon and some of the streamers to make sure that it does have some of those, you know, as Charlotte mentioned, those those tentpole events. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the reaction from kind of veteran broadcasters and veteran journalists about why they believe that Channel 4 has been targeted. So there was, I think it was Jon Snow actually came out and said, you know, that basically the government was on a revenge kick you know nothing, for, John Snow. <laughs> for actually, uh, I mean, there is equally an argument that Channel Four News has opened itself up to that criticism. Mm. But anyway, also Channel Four is the home of Naked Attraction. So, oh, <laughs> right. fair enough. Okay, well, that should really be the kind of the the John end point. Sn- of that conversation. There's only one yeah. place in the world you could have John Snow and naked attraction mm-hmm. and it's channel four <laughs> but it'd be so that's sort of the in the media moments report that's what we're going to be digging into is some of the stuff that's been going on naked that, attraction. Been fascinating yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> don't google it <laughs> uh so really who knew, who knows what it means for publishers um in general we're in a holding pattern really until we find out who the culture secretary um, is going to be by the time the report goes out because i imagine <laughs> it will have changed <laughs> four or five times don't <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay. So one of the big launches, I suppose, was, or rather kind of the, the big developments has been over the past, what, 18 months now, has been GB News and then Talk TV. So Charlotte, why don't you take us through sort of what's been going on there in terms of kind of big launches and then almost a vault face in how people think about them? Yeah. So GB News kind of, it was there was a bit of a fuss around it, as you all remember, because it was Andrew Neil who was another big name exodus from the BBC. For two weeks. For two weeks. For a few weeks. I think it might have been a three or four it lasted. And there was this big launch of this thing called GB News. Everyone was like, oh my God, it's going to be Fox News in the UK. Andrew Neil was like, wait to watch it. (laughs) Um, And the long and the short of it, it just basically looked like absolute garbage. That was so funny. (laughs) Like the launch was was a disaster. It was a total mess. It just looked absolutely horrible. It was some of the some of it like let's t- let's take the content aside. Some of the production fuckups were hilarious. Like the color grading was all wrong. Everybody looked like they were in a volcano. They couldn't show <laughs> submissions from um, people sending you pictures. The sound was all fucked up. It was just 
and, and that new statesman piece that we've referred to a couple yeah, of times, Peter, brilliant. really went into they went into it with this startup mentality, but none of the expertise required to do it. So let's just finish the GB News story first, yeah. which was there was a massive, massive row at the top of the organisation. Andrew Neil and I think a few other quite significant people have walked out, and it's basically reinvented itself as this niche, feisty outlier show with some kind of some shows that get some big name hits on you know in the world of diminishing broadcast numbers it just about holds its own if we're being fair some you know like the dan wouldn't that couple of hours gets viewers a couple of the others do get viewers um i think there's a whole set of conversation we can have about disinformation as as well Oh, yeah. I, I thought it sort of moderated itself a bit. Like it, it was, it was originally sort of pitching as this big, um, you know, like oh, oh, with you know, with the UK's answer to the. <laughs> I see a lot of head shaking. Peter's <laughs> head is. <laughs> um, I actually, it, it hasn't been. Have you as seen bad the anti? Have you seen the anti-vax? Yeah, that's what I was on. thinking. Yeah. Off, off has, yeah, has been. People have been saying over the last couple of days. Actually, not to date the episode, but people have been saying, you know, actually this needs to be referred to Ofcom at this point because the vaccine disinformation. There's been some, you know, it's one thing to have, how can I put this delicately, robust (laughs) and (laughs) perhaps never ending debates about lockdown because that's what your, your niche audience cares about. There has clearly been a move into very dangerous discussions about uh you know anti-vax discussions as we said let's be blunt about it mm-hmm. and there's been some quite on certain shows there's been some quite serious anti-vax stuff at the beginning of russia's invasion of ukraine i re- recall one of the shows basically saying well you can't trust her we don't really know what's going on in ukraine like we don't really know what russia's doing and you're like i what? think we probably do yeah i'm like so i think we have to be i missed that so that's a slightly separate issue to like the launch and the technicalities behind it. But as well as the kind of poor production values, there has been this thing. And actually, in some ways, I hope this doesn't sound too snobby. I think the two kind of fit together. I think GB News has got this thing that it's a bit rough and ready. And it's a bit like the guy down the pub saying the things he says you can't say in public. And it's got that bit of a vibe about it. And I think that's kind of working for it. Mm, it has established itself to some extent as that, that outsider, right? Um, even though you know, as you said, the line has been crossed so many times. So far over the line, they can't even see the line anymore. The um, line is a dot to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I suppose then you know, GB News is still something that remains to be seen how that pans out because the sixty million investment only just happened. I, I think basically the people that like GB News like GB News, and they found the people that no. they found it, and that's kind of where it is mm. you were about to bring up talk tv which i was sort of have had the opposite thing <laughs> so yeah why don't we take because because that has developed so quickly because it launched mm. with great fanfare and we spoke about on the podcast last season that that huge campaign for piers morgan who uh, was almost a flagship signing of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which you know was love him or hate him you can't miss him which was yeah. tempting fate. <laughs> yes, yes, it was tempting fate. I think Peter was teasing me on the show when you referenced it that I sort of, uh, I wrote that it was actually a very, very impressive launch. Yeah. And it was, by, on technical standards, by any technical standards, it was a very impressive launch. And basically the numbers, particularly for Piers Morgan, just about held their own. They weren't spectacular. Mm. But they kind of were enough to justify it going. 
Um, and then everything has just <laughs> fallen off a cliff, really. I mean, I think, didn't we read that the Tom Newton Dunn News Hour on some occasions has registered zero so viewers? So funny, so funny. All the um, uh, private eye reports into kind of the, the fury of Tom Newton Dunn behind the scenes <laughs> has been hilarious. Oh, and, and Morgan blaming Newton Dunn for his low figures as well. So oh, I've got a genuine question here, though. Yeah. Because because it's coming from a place, you know, we, we spoke a little bit about uh, talk radio, obviously the papers, you know, the, the press that they've got. Why have they got no people watching it? Because you know, they've got a platform elsewhere to get people towards it. Why is that not happening? I actually haven't ever come up with a good answer to this question because I, I, either the people that might have watched it are already watching GB News and can't be bothered and <laughs> flicked over to talk TV and it looked slick and a bit like it basically looked like Fox News, didn't it? Mm. And I, I think some people from Fox News consulted with talk TV people, which would make complete sense on, on like how the studios look and whatever. Um, and so, including the one specially built for Piers Morgan, I, I was just, I was trying to look up how much that cost because it was in the hundreds of thousands bare minimum, wasn't it? So I, yeah, I thought the launch genuinely looked really impressive. There was they did the whole. It was very grand. They had like the helicopter shot outside News UK headquarters into to- Tom Newton Dunn into Piers Morgan interviewing President Trump. Now all the words in that sentence may upset you, but that doesn't mean it wasn't good TV for the people who are interested in that stuff. But yeah, it's just completely gone off the rails, uh, and I don't have a good answer to, as to why. But it just. I've kind of got a first night and has never got near since. Yeah, I've got a theory kind of building on that, and that is um, no offense to the more chronologically accomplished members of this podcast. (laughs) I think um, people that watch, that sit down, turn on the TV, and watch whatever happens to come in live tend to be of an older age bracket and they're going to have watched either BBC or ITV or their news channel of choice for quite some time and to actually change that they have they have to be pretty pissed to get to the point that you're going to switch to gb news or talk tv gb news i think swept up the 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 dissenters quite early on i, d- I just don't think anybody under 40 watches tv like that like I that th- was yeah that was something and, that and i remember Charlene, you had that sits, discussion with yeah sits and watches the news at 10 o'clock like mm. when i watch when i when if i want to catch up on the news i, I catch up on online on on phone apps or whatever else and I, I do just wonder if it's this sort of news broadcast. Tw- like, tw- why would I want to tune into twenty four hour rolling TV station, whatever they're talking about? I just watch Netflix. <laughs> I also just I want to make one final point while we're talking about both of these channels, actually. Mm-hmm. And I've made it before, and I will sort of repeat it endlessly. Actually, I think we have a very, very, very different media culture here to the US, and they try to recreate a US media culture mm-hmm. of big name news and talk shows. And basically, unless you're obsessed with James O'Brien or Dan Wooten or, you know, people who are very, very strident in their views and you're obsessed with them as a personality. Um, I, I think I offended both James O'Brien and Dan Wooten in that one sentence. <laughs> um, I, but we do, we do not have that culture. We do not have that. I'm a Rachel Maddow viewer. I'm a Tucker Carlson viewer. I'm a, you know, Sean Hannity fan. That does not exist here in the UK. And they all these things that we've just mentioned, particularly Talk TV, have tried to recreate that 
And I just don't think it works here for whatever reason. Thank goodness. We're just well, not used to it. I suspect the existence of the BBC and it's yeah. the idea of neutrality around news in general in the TV news in the UK is part of that. But for whatever reason, it has never taken and worked here. Well, we could talk about that endlessly. And I'm no, no doubt we will be talking about both of those entities going forward. But Peter, you want to talk about what other publishers are doing in terms of broadcast. Yes. And as I said, it, as Esther might put at the top of the show, seeing we're adopting that kind of insider <laughs> speak now, um, I have no clue about broadcast. Despite Esther's accusations of me being an old person watching the news at 10 o'clock, I don't watch a lot of TV. You're, you're linear, young at heart, linear, linear t- <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I have a question rather than a moment. Um, I was thinking back to the independent and the independent TV channel that I guess they launched in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's still there. I've had a look at it and it looks good. But I just wondered, A, how's that going if anyone knows? And B, is anyone else doing similar stuff there? Big issue launch one, didn't they? Mm, yeah. I have no clue how that did either. I, no, you know, I, I, I so did have a look, but there's, yeah, a lot of, there's not much update on any of them. Well, here, and here's my suspicion. <laughs> when you don't hear about things, it generally means they're not doing that great. Um, and I thought those were both really interesting initiatives, and I just wondered, anyone know what's going on? Well, is to what extent is is that because the the big issue we spoke about during the pandemic and its reaction was fantastic. But I wonder yeah, if they almost stuff. had opposite um, it, the pandemic had opposite impacts on both of them. Because Indie TV, I was talking to them before, like just as it launched, they were saying that the, their shows required sponsors. Uh, they would not commission anything unless it had a sponsor for it. Yeah. And so I think that maybe in the you know as we saw a ad freeze and some budgets being frozen in the wake of the pandemic potentially that has impacted how much they're doing and maybe they're ramping it back up now. Whereas with the big issue, their response was to go all in on launching new endeavors. So I wonder if they have been galvanized in a way that has, you know, at the same time frozen indie TV. I just, I think when you look at, so one of the best words I've seen around all this debate is, actually that's not true. One of the words that, my new least favorite word (laughs) Is associated with this whole streaming debate, and it's Rundle. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's an unpleasant sound. Scott Galloway, marketing guy in the States, has, has described regular revenue bundles as Rundles. Oh, such a crazy I hate word. that. I hate and that. I, and I think that idea of people like, you know, NDTV or whoever becoming part of other people's services is actually quite interesting because publishers knowing their own niche, knowing their own audiences can create a product that maybe doesn't justify its own subscription, but mm. as part of a rundle, it's like Scooby-Doo, isn't it? Rundle. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as part of that, it might work. Uh, before we end, though, there is one last thing that we need to talk about, and that is, as Esther, you flagged up the um, the ad supported tiers yes, for Netflix, is, which are going to be huge in the kind of the media world. This is my media moment that hasn't actually happened yet, but um, if Netflix and Disney sort of continue being competition, it'll be introduced next week. Um, so Netflix have brought forward their plans to introduce a lower cost ad supported tier to get ahead of Disney Plus doing the same in September. Um, the two of them are pretty much the biggest streaming services out there now. So there's a lot of um, 
argy bargy between the two. Um, I don't know kind of how you guys feel about starting to see ads on services that we're paying for. So clearly transition is happening. That, that That's undoubted for all the examples, because of all the examples you've just explained. And remember, a lot of these are starting in America and then will move to other mm-hmm. markets. So quite clearly, we're, it's a state of transition. Uh, I don't particularly object to the introduction, depending on how it's done, of adverts to some of these streaming services if it mm-hmm. saves me money. I don't, you know... My show has adverts. I love advertisers. Your show has advertisers. Like, we all have advertisers. It's fine. I don't object to adverts when, you know, if they're done in an appropriate manner. Like, when I listen to podcasts, it doesn't bother me. When I watch broadcast TV and there's adverts, it doesn't bother me. It's the time to go make a cup of tea. It's fine. (laughs) Um, The problem is, particularly with Netflix, they set it up as their alternative model was you never have to see an advert. And whether they, they didn't always say it explicitly, but it was certainly implicit. And just, just on the Netflix thing, there's no confirmation on costs yet, um, but it's expected to be under five pounds a month. And the cheapest tier currently in the UK is about 6.99. I just think that's such a scam. I know, right. I'm I'm actually, it's like, keep paying what you're paying now and view ads or everyone else, you're going to be paying more. It's an excuse to Ah. get prices up. So that's Disney Plus. Disney Plus, um, they announced in August that they were going to, um, they were going to do Disney Plus Basic, which is an ad supported version for $7.99 a month, at which point people went, that's currently the lowest price tier. And they're like, oh yeah, the the current cheapest ad free plan is jumping up to $10.99 a month. Mm. So you can pay for the privilege of watching ads. So I I was actually considering retaking up a Disney plus subscription, but not for, not for $10.99 a month. And I'm not, um, I'm not overly keen on watching the ads on it, but I I found this quite odd because so in the UK, I know we're talking about channel Four an awful lot earlier. The deal with that, as I understood it was always, it is free because you get adverts every 15 minutes. So to, this is going to be the, f- I suppose in the US they've had Hulu doing that a lot for a lot longer, but in the UK, this is going to be certainly the first time we've experienced this kind of, we're paying and watching ads at the same time. Mm. We like yeah. It's not such an alien concept. As I said, the problem is more that Netflix in particular set itself up as this was mm. the better alternative. You pay a yeah. little bit more and it gets you away from ads. And that's, that's what's changed. We are obviously used for things that we pay for having adverts in it as well. Yep. How they sell that to the to the public is going to be so interesting to see. Um, they're going to have to go all out in a sort of, you know, actually, no, this is great value for those of you who, you know, maybe want to penny pinch a little bit, that sort of stuff. It's going to be interesting to see. But like there's, there's great value of maybe saying, you know, we'll, we'll put you on a sort of two or three pound a month thing. And then for yep. Disney to say it's going to be the equivalent of like six yep. quid a month, that's that's... That's not a yeah, cheap, but that, you know that, that's what? not an tempting deal. But you know what? They won't make it six quid a month. They'll absolutely do dollar sterling parity. Mm. The same way as Apple did, it'll be ten ninety nine. It won't be they won't do some weird exchange rate. Mike, you guys know a lot more about the kind of ad industry than me. If you're an advertiser, mm-hmm. do you want to be associated with the quote unquote penny pinching? kind of platform is that is that where you want your ads is that the target audience i mean that's quite an interesting new dynamic to it as well isn't it you mm. do if you're aldi 
That that <laughs> is exactly right. I just recorded a um, a podcast yesterday for the drum about uh, programmatic, and the big thing was everyone's very excited about programmatic allowing you to buy across TV, and that's going to really open up to you know Charlotte, as you said, those kind of fast moving consumer goods. Some of those brands that would never have been able to advertise on TV before, or that they perceived themselves as being unable to. So yeah, we're going to see a, a much broader range of advertisers potentially take this up. It, it's good in the sense that I suppose if, if publishers are looking to perhaps introduce ads alongside subscriptions, could, but for for things like Disney Plus and Netflix, it, it just the way they're doing the price rises, it just feels a little bit greedy to me. And I I, I know mm-hmm. Netflix, you know, doesn't make a vast amount of money. <laughs> and I suppose it's that thing: have we been climatized to getting a huge library of very very expensive content for five ninety nine a month? And actually, that's not sustainable. And we need to understand the reality of that a bit more well, or are like people classic and are people original. paying for this are they going to then see ads and think yeah but you're just you're just doubling up the money you're making on me that's a classic digital's original sin give mm. people something for nothing and then try and charge them for it and fundamentally get your buzzer ready chris <laughs> fundamentally it comes down to vc rapacious capitalistic greed I'm so glad we started the new season with uh, with <laughs> some of the old catchphrases, just so people know that we've not changed all that much. Because with these people, it's always a scale play. Always. Mm. It's always about scale. And it's never, it fundamentally, never about profit and loss. It, in, the, in the most basic sense of how much you spend and how much you make. You know, if you look at Disney and Netflix, actual profit per user, it's wildly different because Netflix is having to buy load and make loads and loads of content. Disney's got Walt's archive. That's such an important point. Um, and there was really good stuff on the Ankler about this. And I, I, I did a little bit of writing on it as well about how when everyone got excited that Disney had caught up with Netflix, Netflix is still making significantly more per you subscriber than Disney. And that's a Peter's point to, is a very important one to have in mind as the kind of next phase of streaming plays mm. out. I think we said uh, before we went on hiatus that this is going to be the year of ARPU. And that's probably, so, I mean, I know I still the term. Bundles <laughs> <laughs> uh, and ARPUs. I've had enough of this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, like I said, all of this is going to be available in depth in our Media Moments 2022 report, which is going to be out, Esther, when? November the 30th. Um, You can pre-register for that, so please do. And also, we'd like to give thanks again to uh, Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of the Media Voices podcast and the report itself. So if you'd like to learn more about topics like optimizing subscription conversion rates, stealable retention strategies, and tips like how to limit the impact of paywalls on SEO, they've got a ton of helpful resources at blog.pool.tech, and that is triple O in pool. Um, and don't forget, you can pre-register to download the Media Moments 2020 report by going to voices.media slash mm22. Or if you're listening but, to this after November the 30th, you can just go to just the same address. <laughs> but Charlotte, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and share your expertise. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat to you guys. Of course, do you want to give a quick plug to uh, for everything you're doing? Yeah, head over to theedition.substat.com. That's edition with a double D. Um, and I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. So when you listen to the show, you can tell me all the reasons I'm wrong. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get back into that. Don't encourage or not. Next week, we're going to be looking at how the advertising markets fared in 2022, and we're going to be joined by business insiders Laura O'Reilly to discuss key moments and what publishers can expect going into next year. But for now, thank you so much for listening to this first episode of uh, the Media Voices Media Moments 2022 season. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and do stay safe. Bye. Bye.